Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for opening your word to us. Would you speak through me and to us all? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If this is your first time here, welcome. And even if it's not your first time, welcome. I'm the Reverend Kate Norris. It's such a good... um, such a good, good day to be with you. (laughs) On all three campuses of Holy Cross this morning, we are talking about daring to build relationships. Not surprisingly, we are going to look at relationships this morning by asking two questions. Firstly, how does Jesus make a relationship with us? And then, How does he connect us to others? The surprise twist of this relationship is that it is one we would never choose. Indeed, we will see in Matthew chapter 9 that neediness, sickness, weakness is the foundation of friendship with Jesus. Furthermore, this weakness connects us with others. What? We would never think this up. The marks of a disciple are ones we would never put on our resume or on our dating profile on Match.com. Meeting Jesus and then following him is usually rather humbling and sometimes painful, but it's also the greatest love and the greatest hope that you've ever known. You'd never choose to meet this way, but that's how you know you've met the living God. That's how you know you're not making this whole God thing up. He surprises you. My family and I are walking through another unchosen surprise right now. My father who's here this morning, was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer in May, and none of us, especially him, would choose to deal with this. We do not want to walk through this valley of the shadow of death, yet this is another opportunity where God has led us, and we will see his redemption, his comfort, his compassion, and his promise of everlasting life in the midst. Your love, your support, your prayers have been one of the greatest encouragements. For that we thank you. And we are not the only ones here in need this morning. You too have spouses with cancer. You too have children with disease. You have already lost a father or a mother. You are facing troubles with your career. Is Jesus displeased? Is he distant? Are you not a disciple of his because you struggle? No. Our passage today says he is with you in it, and he is for you. And he's brought us together to grieve, and to rejoice together, and to watch him work. We are a fellowship of forgiven sinners 
of the sick who know their healer. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share this same story of Jesus feasting with tax collectors and sinners. Usually, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell the story of Jesus' life from different angles, like a beautiful song that has lots of harmony. However, with this passage, all three Synoptic Gospels align. In Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5, all three parts of the song line up in crescendo to trumpet the same events of the same week with this golden nugget nugget of the gospel at the center. They create a threefold repetition to proclaim two things. Jesus is a friend and forgiver of sinners, a doctor to the sick, God himself with his people. And secondly, a disciple of Jesus knows he or she needs him. A disciple is a sick person pointing to their doctor. A disciple is a sinner called to follow Jesus. Now there are some professional disciples in the audience watching Jesus during this this crescendo. The Pharisees, who were experts in the Old Testament, are right in his face. But they are not his disciples yet. So what is not a disciple? The Pharisees focused on what they did to serve God, not on what God did to serve them. You want me to obey the food laws? You want me to obey all the Ten Commandments all the time? That's what a relationship with God is about? Got it. Their focus on the rules and policing other people made them miss God, staring them in the face altogether. They forgot about their own sin, their own need for compassion. They didn't need it if they were doing it right. And they pushed others away who weren't. All three Gospels line up here because Jesus explains the Gospel so succinctly it conveys the whole testimony of Scripture. The Pharisees, the professional law disciples, ask Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus overhears this question. And he answers, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. They know they need help. They know they need mercy from God. The events around this statement of Jesus also preach this. Jesus had just healed a paralytic man, the man with the withered hand right after this. He feeds his hungry disciples on the Sabbath, and now he eats with tax collectors and sinners. The three gospel writers are singing in unison, see yourself in these people. We are they. We are the tax collectors who have sold out our friends. We are the helpless before God in his holiness. 
We are the hungry. We are the lame. It is no fun to come face to face with your own need and sinfulness. But when Jesus does it to you, you know at once that you are forgiven and loved and never alone. This is the gospel crescendo. And we know some Pharisees will be given the grace to hear it too. Matthew adds something that Mark and Luke do not. He adds a unique sentence in this very tightly ordered succession of events. He adds these words of Jesus. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Here Jesus is quoting from the prophet Hosea. God asks Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Gomer is a symbol of God's relationship with Israel. God is the faithful husband. Israel is the harlot who cheats on him. If you ever doubted whether God understands the internal mind games we play, the psychological impulses that drive our emotions and our actions, then read the prophets. He does. In this particular passage in Hosea 6, chapter 6, the tribes of Israel have been numbing out. It says that they see their wound and turn to everyone but God for help. The Assyrians most of all. They see their wound and they turn to everyone else but God. And then they fake repentance. They fake turning back to him. They do some morning sacrifices. They say some prayers. And God, of course, sees through it. And he's writing through Hosea in this. And he replies, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. I don't care about your sacrifices, about your platitudes. I desire steadfast love. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want to show you mercy. In order to do that, I must show you your need. I love you enough to break down your walls to do that. Hence, Hosea's convicting words and convicting consequences to the Jews. And hence, Jesus' convicting words to the Pharisees. And they preach to the church today when we are like them. You know, Jerry Seinfeld, we were watching comedians in cars getting coffee. And he said, whenever two people get together, one is giving the other advice. It's like what it is, what human relationship is. Let me tell you what you need to do. That is our natural instinct. That is the Pharisee impulse. Instead, the testimony of Jesus' disciple is, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. Our mentor, uh, the Reverend Mike Warschmidt, planted a church to the homeless in Pittsburgh, and he started that and got the heart to do it 
because he, as a young married man with a young family, had started his own computer business. It was very successful, but he had made some verbal agreements with people who fell through, and suddenly he found himself homeless and felt like a complete failure and had to rely on the friendship of family and friends and getting food lines. And it humbled him so greatly. And God met him so deeply in that. And he was a Christian the whole time that God uh, gave him a heart to want to say, to stand in that place of homelessness and say, God is with you and for you. And it's going to turn this into a chance to get to know him better. And it's going to use this for redemption in your life. And he said to me, he was like, this was recently, when can I ever be done telling this story of when I was homeless? It happened like 40 years ago. And I'm so kind of sick of being, you know, always having to tell it. Um, and it spoke to me because he has been boasting in his weakness. And it has been connecting him in a genuine way from his need to my need to your need in a genuine way and witnessing to the gospel. So I'm glad he hasn't stopped. In a closing remark, I'd like to share a testimony about this passage in my own life. I've shared it in bits and pieces before, and so bear with me, but um, I haven't told you this little nugget yet. So, um, so I, I've, I've, as you may have heard me say, I have always loved Jesus and known he was real. I had amazing parents who loved me and loved him too. I was usually the only Christian in the room, and I grew up sharing my faith naturally with my friends. In reflection, uh, that means I have done all my sinning as a Christian too. <laughs> Yay! And. Um, and uh, also in reflection, most of my Sunday school was about how to be like Jesus, how to copy him, what would Jesus do, um, let's imitate him. And the message I implicitly caught was that I was to be a role model for Christ. People should be able to look at my life and say, wow, she has so much love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Oh my goodness, just, and just want to be Christians because of looking at my life. <sighs> it created some pressure. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, being told what you should do doesn't actually help you do it. Jesus does. And he does it the other way around, as we have seen. He meets you when you don't do it, I learned. At 16 years old, my, my age, uh, we moved back to the States to a new school, um, new friends, new country, and there I became anorexic immediately. I was in denial for three years, despite an intervention from my high school and pleas from my parents. I was desperately trying to be a role model, but was crumbling under the pressure. From the outside, I looked like I was doing great. Youth group leader, captain of this, head of that. Um, I joined InterVarsity in college and became a leader there too, but the Lord saw the pain on the inside. My freshman year in college, my mother asked me to go to a Christian counseling center 
that had an intensive program for eating disorders called the Center for Hope in Seattle. And there I actually began to recover. There I faced and grieved the reasons that made me turn to an eating disorder to cope with my pain, not so unlike the Jews in Hosea chapter 6, turning to something else other than the Lord to numb out. There is so much more to that story, and I would be happy to talk to you more if you or a loved one are dealing with eating disorders. 21 years into recovery, there can be healing. But it's not by doing it right. It's by admitting my need. The scene I want to leave you with was my first group therapy session at 19 years old. I walked into a room and there was a grandmother in her 70s who was bulimic. She had been all her life. She was 70. There was an attractive 30-something nurse who had been stealing prescription pain medication from her patients. There was a mother there on court order for her DUI. There was a high school student there for depression. And me. I felt like an evangelistic failure. I have spent my life trying to show that Jesus fills you with love and joy and peace, and here I am, a mess. And then I heard a voice inside my head. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. For the first time, I had the permission to admit that I am sick. I am a sinner. At the same moment I felt exposed, I knew that he knew and loved me. I realized My testimony is not that Jesus makes my life perfect. It's that I'm forgiven. I need him just as much as you, and I have him. It humbled me and softened my heart to be honest and receptive to the painful road of recovery. And it has happened over and over in different areas of my life as I've gotten to know this Jesus more. It's what connects me to others who suffer. It was so counter to the Christianity I heard growing up that I had a hunger to share it, which eventually led me to seminary and eventually led me here. I was not patronizing those around me anymore. You know what you need to do. I was one of them who had the most compassionate doctor. Let me tell you about him. None of you want to face the struggle ahead or the sin in the shadow. But this is where Jesus meets us, and he will not leave your side one minute until he has brought you safely home.
And now we are connected. And now we are connected as those who suffer. But we have a person who is with us. So embrace our need. Because we have a doctor and an advocate, a forgiver, and a friend.